0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on China and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Hannah Anderson, Global Market Strategist on the Global Market Insights Strategy Team, and Sylvia Sheng global market strategist in multi-asset solutions. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence.
1: Thanks for having us. Happy to be here.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and jump right in. This year, 2019, China is going to pass a pretty significant milestone in its development. And that milestone is that GDP per capita or GDP per person using market exchange rates is going to hit 10,000 U.S. dollars. This comes after China's GDP per capita has doubled since 2011 and increased 10 times since the year 2000. And the reason why this is so important is because when GDP per capita increases, That's reflective of better living standards. And when you think about the north of 1 billion people that are in China, this improvement in living standards really represents one of the greatest and fastest economic success stories in history. That said, over the past few years, you know, the pacing of economic growth in China has slowed from double digits coming right out of the financial crisis to around the mid single digits today. So the economy is clearly at an important juncture. Hannah, let's start broadly with you. Can you describe what the middle income trap is, where we think China may go from here with respect to economic growth, and specifically some of the opportunities and challenges that they'll face as they make this journey?
1: So what we think of when we think of the middle income trap is this concept where emerging markets grow really rapidly at some early stages in their development – You can gain enormous amount of economic output from simple increases in investment into the broader sectors of the economy. These countries are typically leaning on their industrial base. You have a young, rapidly growing workforce, and factors like that make acceleration and growth really easy initially. Once the country starts to get a little bit richer and enters the middle income group, it's tougher to get that same rate of growth. On an already relatively large economy in most cases. And so because you're not achieving that same rate of growth, even though you likely still are growing, you're not in a recession, and you still have this rapidly expanding population, raising living standards closer to those what we think of in developed markets or close to the level developed economies are at is more difficult And so some countries fail to see their living standards get any closer to the developed world. And we call this concept the middle income trap because they tend to get stuck at around this level. What's a little bit different about China's case is that not only is China still going to be growing, and even though it's a slower rate of growth, we still think, compared to China's population, is enough to continue raising incomes— But at this particular moment in time, despite some challenges, the developed world is going to be growing much more slowly, meaning even as China is growing at a slower rate, it's still probably going to be growing faster than high-income countries, bringing its middle income status even closer to that higher income on a per capita basis.
0: Excellent. You know, obviously, the idea of a middle-income trap comes from historical experience. So can you kind of compare what China is going through today to what we've seen across other countries historically, perhaps where and why they've run into problems when they've gotten to this juncture in their development?
2: So actually, if we look at historically, we have two cases where the economies, once reaching the per capita GDP level of 10,000 US dollars that they actually went on to join the high income countries. These two economies are encouragingly also located in Asia, they are Korea and Taiwan. So I guess one of the key differences with China and those two economies back in 1990s when they were at a similar stage of development is really the external environment. If you look back at the 1990s, when we see the trade volume growth, it's actually much faster than what we have observed in the past few years. So you would say that the external environment is less favorable to China compared to what it was to Korea and Taiwan in the 1990s. And obviously, the U.S.-China trade dispute is not really helping. If we look at those two cases, after they reach the $10,000 U.S. Dollars per capita GDP level, in the following 15 years, they actually continue to grow at an annual average rate of 5%. So given the less favorable external environment, we think it's unlikely for China to maintain that level of growth. But we still think China can manage somewhere around 4.4% for the next 10 to 15 years. And with that projection, actually, we think China will break out of the middle income level. And we think China will actually reach the high income level as defined by the World Bank, by meet 2020s at the latest.
1: Exactly like Sylvia said, we have two economies we can point to as easy parallels that could offer a path for China's growth going forward, and those are Korea and Taiwan. But also, the reason the middle income trap concept exists is that there are some countries that have gotten to the middle income level, notably a lot of the economies in Latin America, have reached middle income status and stayed there for long periods of time. And naturally, that has raised a lot of concerns among economists when China reaches that same point. Is it going to follow its East Asian peers or is it going to fall into the trap of a few other emerging economies? And this is where we would point to the drivers of growth really matter. When an economy is coming up from a very underdeveloped state into middle income or even reaching higher income. It's that initial phase of growth, going from low income to middle income. You can lean on some pretty easy levers to promote growth. Typically, you've got a rapidly expanding workforce, so more people creating more output. You can make some core infrastructure investments that your economy likely lacked before starting its acceleratory phase of growth. And by making those core base investments, you can get a lot of growth pretty easily. But now that the easy wins are over, It's time to look at some other levers of growth, which is a process we see China actively engaged in right now and something that we think could contribute to China's future growth if done in the right way. Now, there's an upside scenario. There's a downside scenario. But we think China, even making some modest reforms like they seem to have been over the past couple of years, could push growth. It's not going to push above where it is now, but will likely push growth on a steady but slightly grinding lower path. In the next couple of years,
0: so it sounds like from where I sit, you know, China's at a pretty important juncture in their development when other countries have gotten to this point. Sometimes it's gone well; sometimes it hasn't gone quite as well. Hannah, you mentioned reform, and I want to pivot back to Sylvia for this next question. But if we look over the past, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, when growth in China has slowed. What they've relied on to get growth back on track are the state-owned enterprises, right? They've been able to inject, whether it's liquidity or stimulate demand, in ways that are really focused on the state-owned and historically more industrial side of the equation. That's been the driver in the past. This is an area that's now poised for reform. So, Sylvia, can you talk a little bit more about what we expect in terms of how this transition is going to play out and what the government's really trying to achieve as they reform these SOEs?
2: Sure. So actually, back in the 1990s, the government took really bold actions to reform the state-owned enterprises sector. And back then, the state sector actually played a much more significant role in the economy. So actually, the main things they did back then was really to privatize some of the smaller SOEs and then trying to energize the more kind of larger SOEs, the unprofitable ones. So what they did was they provided some financial support and also laid off a lot of workers for the larger SOEs, so made them more profitable. And also, they basically let some of the really unviable ones to go bankrupt eventually. So actually, that phase of SOU reforms in the late 1990s really unleashed China's growth potential in the following decade. So you could see that China's rapid growth is really partly a result of the productivity improvement in the state sector as a result of the productivity boosting reforms back then. But after that, actually, you see the dividend from those reforms start to wane, and you really see the efficiency of the state sector start to deteriorate since 2010. So now what we have is really a state sector that's less efficient and more indebted than the private sector in China. That's really the key reason why the Chinese government really is emphasising in pushing forward more reforms in the SOE sector. What they have been focusing on more recently is really the mixed ownership reform, i.e. it's by introducing private capital into the state sector. So the key is really to improve efficiency in the SOEs and also trying to modernise their corporate governance. So that is really the focus of the reforms currently.
0: So essentially trying to take these less efficient, highly levered businesses and improve their efficiency, their productivity, so on and so forth. As this occurs, what do you think some of the challenges in particular that China is going to face? I mean, what's going to make this difficult to achieve or what could act as a tailwind for this process over the coming years?
2: So I guess the challenge for reforming the SOE sector is really there's just a lot of stakeholders involved, even though the central government has been trying to push this. But we do note that the progress has been relatively slow. So that's probably one of the key challenges. But... We do see a lot of room, actually, for improvement in productivity in the state-owned sector. So if you look at some of the estimates from the IMF, actually the state firms are 25% less efficient than the private sector firms. There's a lot of room for improvement if the right measures are taken. So I think actually there are two key things that could be done that could lift the efficiency and productivity of the state sector. So the first one is really to introduce more competition into the state sector by deregulating some of the state sector dominated areas such as finance or healthcare. So that really is one of the ways that you could foster competition and boost productivity in the state sector. And also another way is really to remove some of the implicit guarantees that a lot of the state sectors enjoy. One of the key problems we have now is really this misallocation of capital. So a lot of the bank loans and capital is flowing to the less efficient state sector, while the more efficient, more productive private sector don't have enough capital. So if we can really solve that problem, we would have a better allocation of capital that could really benefit productivity to the economy overall and help to sustain a relatively higher level of growth than what we have envisaged in our base case scenario.
1: And where this all ties back to growth is it's these reforms sit directly at the intersection of productivity and investment. Now, when you think of where an economy derives its growth from, you really have three levers to pull. And this is the framework we use to forecast economic growth over the long run. You can either change your growth in your workforce, so growth in the number of people you have working at jobs producing output. You can change the amount of investment. You can give those workers more tools or you can change your productivity. That's how efficiently your workers can use those tools that you invested in. Now, China is facing the exact same demographic challenge that a lot of other rich countries are. The US, Europe, Japan are all at different stages, But including China, all of them are facing an aging population and a workforce that's not growing as rapidly, despite China's enormous workforce size. Exactly like Sylvia just mentioned, investment has long been a bone of contention in China. China is a high investment economy. A lot of it is state-directed, and a lot of it is pushed out to projects that have perhaps a more political benefit than economic benefit. And so, reforming the way investment is distributed is naturally going to enable higher growth, probably both in the investment as new projects get funded, but also make that investment more productive. And particularly with state-owned enterprises, which lag the rest of China's firms in their productivity, outright reforming them to make them more productive, given their still large weight in China's overall economic output, will raise China's growth outlook.
0: It sounds like really at the nexus of this is the financial sector, whether it is with respect to the fact that there isn't enough competition, whether it has to do with the misallocation of capital, whether it has to do with the robust pace of investment, which occurs in the Chinese economy. So Sylvia and Hannah, I'll bring you both into the conversation. Can we narrow this down a little bit? I mean, Financial sector reform is something that it sounds like is clearly in focus. Can you talk a little bit about how you expect things will play out here going forward with respect to that sector in particular?
2: So I guess the two key areas they're looking at right now is really one is on the monetary policy framework. What they're trying to do is really to move from a quantity-based system into a more kind of price based framework. So that is from controlling the quantity of money that's in the economy, the amount of loans that banks lending out to a more where they control the interest rate in the economy. So actually, the key there is really to improve the transmission mechanism of where the Central banks set the policy rate, how it actually affects interest rate in the market. If we have a more market-based interest rate system, that could help address some of the problems of misallocation of capital in the economy. Actually, apart from that, another area that have been focused on is really reforms in the capital market. Chinese capital market has been dominated by bank loans, so a lot of indirect financing. What the authorities are really trying to push forward is this shift to more direct financing through the capital market. So either through the equity market, through IPOs, or through the bond market issuing of debt. So we will likely to see more reform measures in that. And also at the same time, they're trying to open up the Chinese capital markets to foreign investors And we're likely to see a higher amount of foreign investors' participation as the Chinese government kind of loosens the restrictions that they have on
1: the onshore markets currently. This really comes back to the productivity point that we've been making. What China's large, if unstated, goal here is to make the allocation of resources more efficient, to get more productivity out of their economy and by doing so the government is trying to very slowly and in a measured and orderly way take a step back from deciding who the winners and losers in China's economic system are now they're doing this through a variety of different ways one is shifting their monetary policy framework from a quantity based system where they control the supply of money and how much of it is in the economy at a certain time To a framework more like what investors are familiar with in the U.S. or in Europe, which is controlling the price of money, where a central bank, the People's Bank of China, would set a base interest rate based on a risk-free rate that investors would then add appropriate levels of risk to their pricing of capital. And so building out a borrower's yield curve that actually incorporated in judgments about the worthiness of certain projects. This goes hand in hand with the financial system or the capital markets reforms to allow investors to pick the winners and losers and to decide based on their purchases of equity financing or bonds issued by corporations in China to pick which projects they actually think are worthy and economically useful and therefore will provide them a higher return. Obviously, this has a lot of implications for us as investors, particularly those who are able to access now for the first time through projects like the Stock Connect and Bond Connect, these new issues of shares in China. But overall, what it really is at its core is an effort by the government to make the system work more efficiently. And they decided that going forward, that needs to be something that's more determined.
0: So I think we've kind of gotten to the natural conclusion here. We've talked a little bit about the growth of China's experience and how they've gotten to where they are today. We've talked about state-owned enterprises and how the dynamics in that part of the economy may shift going forward. And we've come to really hone in on what's been happening in the financial sector and some changes that may be occurring there going forward. So let's tie it all up with the investment implications. So given everything that we've discussed today, given the fact that China's weight within emerging market equity indices is expected to hit 50% over the next decade. Hannah, how should investors be thinking about investing in China? What are some of the risks? What are some of the opportunities? And then maybe from a portfolio construction standpoint, should people be thinking about investing in China as part of their broader emerging markets allocation? Or should they be thinking about investing in China as its own sleeve within the context of a broadly diversified portfolio?
1: So I think overall, investors need to be considering how long of an evolution this is going to be for China. None of these changes are going to happen overnight. And historically, when we look at countries who have entered the middle-income group and then accelerated on to the high-income group, the financial development tends to accelerate well beyond the rate of economic growth when it comes to countries moving through the middle-income levels. And what that means for China is China's stock and bond markets and their size relative to China's gross domestic product lag well behind China's economic heft. And so we would expect a significant amount of new issuance in that market, which for certain investors may provide opportunities now that they have relatively unfettered access via the connect programs, both stock and bind. But what investors need to realize is that the establishment of market-based pricing takes some time. And it's going to be a bit of a choppy process, particularly in the bond markets, to establish what the appropriate risk assumptions investors should take on the corporate debt side. Now, China is underwriting a lot of this by issuing significantly more government debt, which in the near term, investors can look at the development of this market as a way to diversify their portfolios, in our view. On the equity market, China's equities are notoriously volatile, even by emerging market standards. And this is owing to their ownership, which is largely retail-based. As China develops its more market-driven capital allocation system, we would anticipate significantly more investors getting involved in the equity markets as companies turn to equities as a legitimate method for financing their operations. And what that means, in very simple language, is there's going to be more institutional investors. Right now, China's market is retail-dominated. About 86% of market volume is owned by retail investors. So that's going to change, which will have a stabilizing influence on equity prices, which for an investor can make a shares a little more attractive, especially also as they become more fundamentally driven instead of sentiment the way they are now. When you put it in a portfolio context, there are a lot of dynamics, I think, that are unique to China, which to me... Also, given its size, as China continues to develop its markets, it's going to become an overwhelmingly large part of the EM universe if you're including China in your EM allocation, whether you want it to or not. And so, in my mind, because of those different dynamics and because all of those dynamics don't necessarily apply to the rest of your EM allocations, I think China should be separated out in the way you make your investment decisions. But that doesn't mean China's separate from the rest of your investments. China's growth and financial emergence will have knock-on effects to the rest of emerging markets, particularly emerging market Asia. As China's markets develop and as their sector composition develops, you could see some crowding out of the operations of other Asian firms. But you could also see certain Southeast Asian and North Asian names taking advantage of China's rising incomes to sell more products to Chinese consumers. Additionally, wealthier people tend to have more money to save and to invest, which could be a boon for financial firms based elsewhere in Asia. But overall, China's large size and already captured domestic market could mean that Chinese industrials and materials and more of the core consumer staples names make it harder for other firms in Asia to compete. So it's more of a nuanced consideration for Asia ex-China for investors looking to manage their emerging market allocations.
2: I think increasingly we are seeing a more compelling case for considering investment in China on a more standalone basis rather than as part of an emerging market asset allocation. I guess one of the key reasons is really the growth opportunities. Because if you look at especially the onshore market, actually both China's equity market and bond market are now the world's second largest. But their share in the emerging market on the index level is still relatively small. So actually, if you want to fully participate in the growth opportunities in China, probably does make sense for you to have a standalone investment in China, especially given the better access to the onshore market. And also, it's interesting to note a lot of the sectors that is better represented in the onshore market is not as well represented in the offshore market. So actually, if you want to participate, say in China's development in the technology space, or if you want to participate in this rebalancing of the Chinese economy from manufacturing to consumption, you're probably better off investing in China's onshore market, because there are more companies that's listed in the onshore market with those characteristics. Also, it's very important to highlight: even though China's domestic asset markets are already large we are expecting further room for growth for China's asset markets. So if we compare China's equity and market to its GDP and compare that to some more developed markets, we still see further room for growth as the Chinese economy develops further. And just finally, on a portfolio construction perspective, investing in China actually also get the diversification benefits So if you think about historically, Chinese assets have had low correlation with a major global equity and bond market. So adding Chinese assets to your portfolio, you also get this diversification benefits because the low correlation with other asset markets.
0: Excellent. Well, Hannah, Sylvia, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you both so much for joining me on the Center for Investment Excellence.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us today on JPMorgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on October 31st, 2019.
3: For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the JPMorgan Asset Management, Market Insights, and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature, and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chasing Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United Kingdom by JP Morgan Asset Management UK Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Europe, SARL, in Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586 k or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, coreg number 201 e In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Canto Local Finance Bureau, financial instruments firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN five five one four three eight three two zero eight zero, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco JP Morgan SA, in Canada for institutional clients use only by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.